0: Okay, no, that'd just be really dirty. Okay, prayer requests, um, prayer requests. Thank you, Zeb, we're recording now. Prayer requests or praises. Wendell. I have a prayer request for you. I have a box in the term. You're all good for me and it's <laughs> was A So, is good. Ha, ha, ha. Okay. I, I see. I see. It was a positive, negative. Got gotcha. you. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Serena. Serena got the uh, with Sophie had the uh, gestational diabetes thing. So yeah, that's a lot of fun. They drink the nasty. Yes, Dana. Tomorrow, you say? Okay. Okay. Um, other praises or prayer requests? Do you? Oh yes. Um, J P and Natalie were wed on Thursday night, and we are now married. Um, so when they show up next, make sure you greet. Um, the newly married couple, they had a wedding of about 15 people. It was very... It actually worked. I was kind of like, what is this? But it actually worked, I thought, rather nicely. It was nice. It was, and dinner was fantastic. Thank you, Elsa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, yes. That's right. Abby Greenland... Well, no longer Greenland. No. Abby and yes, Abby and Matt Godfrey. Abby, formerly Greenland, is now Abby Godfrey. Yes, Yahoob. That's Daniel's older brother, Jacob Moore. They're looking for a place to live, um, both something locally, temporarily, and long-term. So pray for him, and if you know of something, talk to him. Um, Jacob and his wife's name is Stacy. Okay. Other praises or prayer requests? Yes? Yes? Mm. Okay. Ryan, this is his last Sunday here. His internship at Simpson Ends. We're returning home. Oh, sorry. At the where? Iowa Genealogical Society. Where is home for you, Ryan? Pleasantville. It's not too far away. Yeah, it's the from so you can keep coming here if you wanted to. You can't drive. Uh. Okay, we'll, we'll chat, Willow. We'll chat about that. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. Um, Yes. But it's not good. Okay. Well, initially I thought it was a stroke. Then they said it wasn't really anything. And then everything was sort of okay. It was just weird. So this is the newest update where it's not okay. Um, So I just wanted to confirm. Okay. You can pray for, continue to pray for the child's family. We had the funeral for Mariana this week, um, and just pray for Jim. He's really grieving. His family's grieving. Um, so, yeah. Anything else? Simeon's back. How was your time in, in Deutschland? It was good. Man of few words. It's good. Okay. Okay. Um, are we ready to pray? Let's pray. Lord, um, we just gather together and we just thank you for the access that we have before your throne, and we pray that you would um, give us um, grace and help. We come before your throne in time of need of grace and help, and so I lift up uh, Jim Childs and his family as they mourn the loss of Mariana. We thank you for giving her the grace to cause her to persevere faithful to the end, even through much pain and suffering. And now we pray that you would comfort the pain and suffering of the family. You are the God of all comforts who comforts us in any of our affliction with the comfort that we received uh, from Christ. And we, we, we pray that that comfort would be rooted in truth, that if any of the child's family do not know you by faith, that you would reveal yourself to them, that you would draw them to you, that you would give them the only true and real comfort found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think of Renee Simmerman's dad and... His uh, condition, and we just uh, we just pray that you would calm Jeff and Renee's hearts, that you would uh, that you would give the doctor skill in figuring out what is wrong, and that you would um, preserve his health and his life. Lord, we thank you for the time that we've had with Ryan Willoughby, that he's been here with us, and we are sad that this will be our last Sunday of seeing him. And we 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 just pray that you would um, help him find a job, and even help him find opportunity to return here, and. We lift up his grandfather to you who is um, likely in his last week of life. And, but I don't know where he stands with you, but I just pray that you would, um, that you would first and foremost deal with his, his spiritual health. That you would, um, if he does not know you, cause him to know you. That you would remove the veil and speak life and light to his heart. We pray that you would, that you would comfort him in these last days of his life. You would comfort Ryan's family. will miss and mourn the loss. Lord, we um, think of Jacob and Stacy as they're looking for a home, and we rejoice that they've come and bound themselves to this church, and we just pray that you'd help them to find a place to live where they can both, um, for Jacob, be close to work, close to the church, close to family. We just pray that you'd make that possible. Grant them patience and perseverance while that that has not happened. Lord, we rejoice over the recent weddings, um, marriages of Abby and Matt Godfrey and, and Johan and Natalie Conradi. And Lord, we just pray that you would cause those two couples to build their marriage on you and that their marriage would be a true and real picture of the gospel love of Jesus Christ to his bride, the church. Lord, we thank you for Wendell's um, positive, negative report about um, not having any any cancer or any Um, issues in his throat. Lord, um, we pray for those who are are about to take tests. We think of Dania and the glucose test and how unpleasant that is and even how much more unpleasant um, going through uh, gestational diabetes is. Just pray that you protect her from that, that you would just cause this child um, to continue to grow safely and healthily. Lord, and I think of um, Dave Kingery who's awaiting results from a biopsy he had that you would calm his heart, that you would Give him grace. And Lord, we pray that you preserve his health and his life. Lord, we lift up all of these prayer requests to you and many others that I'm sure are non-spoken and just pray that you would, you know what we need. Give us what we need and give us grace to receive your answers with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So, um, as usual, um, any discussion points, questions, points of clarification, haikus, Um, about this morning's message or the series that we're engaged upon. You guys are a talkative crowd, man. Ryan would like another eye. Okay. We'll keep, I'll bear that in mind. Keep my eye out for it. Okay. All right. All right. I'll be here all week. Okay. Any other questions or thoughts from this morning? Anything um, about our relationship to one another? Yes, Elsa. Prior to this, did you guys share um, fellowship as believers? I mean, okay, okay. Right. No, I mean practical fellowship. I mean, like yeah. you guys would like talk about your reading in the Bible together and have spiritual yeah, conversations? Okay, okay. Well, no, that's... Yeah. What, here's the thing. Because you guys aren't part of a local body, you can only go so far in addressing her... her her position on this. I mean, it's tough. Let's face it, it's tough. But Jesus does make it clear there will be people who will have to choose between loyalty to their earthly family and loyalty to God. And he says plainly, anyone who doesn't hate his mother, brother, father um, cannot be my disciple. So if I have to choose between displeasing you, my son, my daughter, my husband, my wife, my mother, my father, or displeasing God, Jesus is right up front and says, your loyalty first and foremost is with me. She stumbled over that. She doesn't want to create the family tension. She doesn't want to hurt her son. She doesn't. You sympathize with those desires. She's just chosen the wrong answer. Um, but it's a real struggle. We want, on the one hand, we want to really sympathize with that and really recognize how difficult that would be. Um, I would, I would call her if, whenever she's bringing the topic up. Certainly, I would engage it. There's a sense in which, because it's not like you guys have a deep Christian fellowship beforehand. I would try to be at peace with all men. She knows what you think. You're not worshiping alongside of God or her are in a church. There's a sense in which she knows what you think. You aren't acting like, brother, like sisters regularly. I'd, I'd be willing to say, okay, I'm gonna look for my opportunities. I'm gonna season my words with salt, but I don't feel compelled every single time I see you to, you know, I, I wouldn't. Um, which isn't to say there's a magic number of how often, you know what I mean? Um, I, I would find it difficult To have christian fellowship with somebody calling evil good i would find that very challenging if not impossible so if you guys were doing things like going to bible studies together and worshiping in church together that would be a little different because how do i have fellowship with someone when i think they're approving of what is evil that's not the case so it's much more like how do i treat the guy down the street who thinks gay marriage is fine well, if we can talk about it, I'd like to talk about it. If not, I'm fine to be at peace and get along. You know what I mean? So I, I, that would be my advice. Anyone want to chime in on that? Take a swing at that ball. Right. So you say, look, <laughs> and you just say, look. It might be more helpful to actually sit down and debate this rather than send memes or things to each other. Um, I, I really want to find the person who has changed of their view by a meme. Um, I don't think it's ever happened, uh, or a little Facebook post. You know, that changed everything. But sit down and talk. Like I would l- love any time you want to sit down, open the Bible, and talk. I don't know if this peppering is helpful, but whatever. But you know what I think, and, you know, just make it be, pe- you trying to be peaceful, you are trying to be open to reason, and yet you're trying to, go to, go to, go to Second Timothy 2.24. four. Second Timothy 2.24. This is, Elsa, this is your stance. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may, perhaps, grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do His will. So th- there's your marching orders. You are going to be not quarrelsome, you're going to be patient especially when wronged, if she's calling you big meanie and she's slandering you and why are you so judgmental and hateful? You're going to be patient and you're going to look for opportunities to correct with gentleness your sister in the hopes that perhaps God might grant her repentance, leading to knowledge of the truth. She's, she's caught in a snare and so you're hoping that God might use you to free her from that snare and you let God worry about whether she listens to you and you worry about am I being gentle, am I being patient, am I being willing to be wronged and am I able, competent to teach and so God parses your responsibilities from his. So God doesn't say she needs to listen to you. She might not listen to you. That's not your, he, he says, I'll take care of that. Elsa, here's your marching orders. I get, I get a lot of mileage out of this passage in my own life. Uh, very helpful separating what my responsibilities are and what God's responsibilities are in these types of things. Um, any, anyone else? Anything else? yeah that's that's probably the best answer It's like do 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 we really want to have this discussion? because I'm happy to, but I'm finding it unhelpful with the little jabs constantly you know um and some people don't they just want to jab and you just sort of okay, that's nice but no no it, it's tough it's tough um, it is tough anything and oh and by the way, this is another example I think of why. The local church is so important because we've got people professing to be Christians but no no commonality, no common bond. You don't have the resources to work through things if people don't want to work through them. People can keep their distance. They can jab and jab and jab. If we're part of a local body, then we've got... We've got shepherds over, help to help. You've got a compulsion. We've we got to be at peace. We've got to work through this. You don't get to keep jabbing at me. We've got to sit down. You have the constraints in place so that you can force the issue out and force resolution. As long as we are just individual Christians, lone maverick, me and Jesus walking into the sunset, there's no way to force that, that resolution. And your friend can just sort of dance around and jab and just do that all day long. And so, there's also a sense in which, okay, I don't know how much energy I'm going to give to somebody who doesn't actually want to work through this, you know, um, especially when there's so much ministry and work that can be done with people that do want to work through things. But, you know, that's, that's up to you to figure out. But um, anything else? Going once. Going twice. To the handout. Does everyone have the handout we've been using for the last three or four weeks? Or do I need to? I have some of the leftover ones Zeb printed, but I only have about maybe 10. Um, Zeb, would you be so kind as to hand these out to whoever needs them? Hopefully, I think we have enough. I only saw a few hands. Um. Okay, while Zeb hands that out, I'll remind you that what we're dealing with is objections to the biblical doctrine of election and predestination. Uh, I've taught, I think the Bible's pretty clear on the fact that God stands sovereignly behind the individual salvation of men and women, Um, that he takes credit ultimately for, for, oh, we need more still, okay, I'll just make my introduction even more long-winded, it's okay, I can do it. I know I can. And what? More long? More longer? More better good? Okay. All right. Okay. And so we've looked through some of the objections, and I'll just pick up one right now, which I hear a lot, is if this is true, if God, and this is, if we're honest, probably the objection that emotionally is most common and most difficult for us is if what i'm saying the bible says is ultimately true that god ultimately is the one who speaks life into hearts is god ultimately who chooses then this turns god into a moral monster that's that's the objection let's put it in its strongest form this this makes god into a moral monster that god is is basically being cruel he's being evil he's being harsh unnecessarily and People really struggle with this, and you know, how do we talk meaningfully of a God of love um, when, when it would appear that God has been turned into a moral monster? And this is why I think the solution to this is if you start with man at the center of the story, you're going to have a very hard time not turning God into a moral monster. If the story is about man, how good man is, how valuable man is, which is why I want to pull my hair out when I see these things. You are worth dying for. There's some popular Christian song on the radio about a year and a half. I, almost, I literally almost drove my car off the road. I was so, what? Driving here at four in the morning and I'm listening to the guys. I don't even know who it is. Please don't tell me. I don't want to know. You got to believe, you simply got to believe, you got to believe that you are worth dying for. And I seriously almost drove my car off the road. I was driving up from Martin Sepatero's, what? And if you start with, that's the story. The story is about these really valuable people. These really special, really valuable, valuable people. So much so that the father looks at his son, and he looks at these people, and he goes, yeah, I'd I'd give up my son for them. That's how valuable you are. You're, You're worth more to the father than the son is. And people say this in the misguided notion that if you feel valuable and you feel important, they'll be good for you. The problem is it's just not the story of the Bible and all sorts of twisted things come out of it. Yes, you are loved. Why can't the fact that you are loved be enough? Do we have to be deserving of that love also? Because we're not. Um, the, The son died for us despite our lack of worth. And then he gives us a worth. We become lovely because he loved us. And... And if you start with man at the center, then you'll ask questions like, why do bad things happen to good people? That's only ever happened once. It was 2,000 years ago on the cross. Understand that. There's only been one time in history that something bad has happened to a good person. And that was on a cross in, in Jerusalem, in, outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And the Bible expects the exact opposite question, which is, If you put God at the center, instead of these really nice people that bad things happen to, then why does the mean, cruel, nasty God not be equally nice to everybody? They're so nice. But if you start with the good, righteous, and holy God in the center, and the is about him... And the good, righteous, and holy God gives a creation to his, to his image bearers and he gives them his, his image and he, he has a relationship with them and he gives them dominion over the land. He has all these good things and so he prepares a good place for them and they rebel against him. And he pursues them and he makes clothes to them and they war with him. And they even like children in the, in the nursery put their, put their fingers over their eyes and their fingers in their ears and pretend he's not there And they take his name in vain. And then, when he sends his son to them to to ransom and redeem them, they nail him to a cross and crucify him. If you tell that story, then you ask the question, why does his wrath tarry? How how could he forgive one person, let alone millions? It it all depends. This God-moral monster thing. If you split man front and center, the story is about man. These really nice people. Yeah. God's going to look pretty mean. But you're going to have that same problem even if God saves everyone. Which is why ultimately, in the more liberal versions of Christianity, the wrath of God is the first thing to fly out the window. Because when you've got a man-centered story, you really have no room for an angry God. God's not really angry. I mean, he doesn't approve of some stuff. And just sin gets whittled down and whittled down and whittled down and whittled down until you get Robert Shuler saying, really, the only sin is a lack of self-esteem. Robert Schuller, Crystal Cathedral, in the New, Revol- the New Reformation, said sin is negativity thinking. It's saying I can't. That's, that's, that's the, the final eclipse. If we are the measure and stature and the center of all things, then the, truly the only sin is to believe that I'm not wonderful. I can't. When I said I should believe I can. <laughs> that is not the story of the Bible that I read. And so the Bible assumes that we should be marveling that God is gracious to anyone. Remember last week, we talked about how, definitionally, grace cannot be obligated. Remember that? Grace cannot be obligated. You can't owe someone grace. If it's owed, it's a debt. It's not grace. Whatever it is, it's owed. It's not grace. And so we've really got to believe, we've got to look square in the face. God could righteously send every single last person to hell, period, full stop, end of story, and be perfectly righteous, perfectly just, perfectly holy, perfectly good. You've got to look that square in the face. And then you start to marvel at the grace of the gospel. Then you start to marvel that he would invite everyone. Then you start to marvel that he, he opens blind eyes and, and unstops deaf ears and gives hearts of flesh where there are hearts of stone. But if you start by thinking, yeah, we pretty much all do deserve a chance. Because after all, God is kind of upset. I mean, let's face it. Then that, that's, that's how you got to deal with the issue of the moral monster argument. Any, anyone want to say anything with that? Okay. what I'm oh, sorry okay um, which brings us to the fifth one which I hear a lot well if that's true Jeremy if God has elected and predestined people to faith then why bother sharing your faith and evangelizing anyone ever heard of that one before has anybody be ever heard of that one before oh yeah and, and the problem here is this one we evangelize first and foremost because we want to be obedient. We evangelize secondly because the love of God is poured out in our hearts, the things he's passionate about, we're passionate about. We don't. But the insinuation of that argument, why bother evangelizing, brings back the man-centeredness. What you're saying is, I'm only willing to participate in something if it depends on me. If it doesn't depend on me, if it will succeed without my help, then I don't want to help. You get that, right? Because what you're saying is, if it doesn't depend on me, if this is guaranteed to succeed either way, if they're going to get saved without my help, then why bother helping? I don't want to participate in something that I'm not essential for. I've got to be important. And, and, and John the Baptist says the stones, God can raise up stones for Abraham, children from the stones. And Jesus said these stones would cry out. God sent a donkey before. He'll do it again. And we get the privilege of participating. We get the joy of participating because our hearts reflect his heart because we get, to, I, we get to participate in something that matters. You know, 10 billion years from now, there's people that I've been able to share my faith with, people I've been able to witness to, who will still, it'll be having an impact, an eternal impact 10 billion years from now that all the, the, the time I wasted in my heavy metal rock band Will about to nothing. But we can participate in things that matter. We can participate in things that have an eternal consequence. And we have the audacity to say, if it doesn't depend on me, I don't want to do it. If I'm not essential, if I'm not mission critical, then why do it? Besides which, Paul says this um, turn to, um, where is it? No, it's Paul, right? For this reason we strive on labor for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain a like salvation. What is that? Is it Timothy? Okay. Um, for the, Just sake of the elect. If you look up sake of the elect. I think it's Timothy. Um, this is why we suffer. And, uh, nope. Second Timothy? They may obtain. There it is. Yeah. 2.10, yeah. Listen to this. On the other side, you could argue, and I think Paul does argue, that a confidence in election and predestination actually motivates to evangelism because we know that the mission can't fail. I I take great comfort in the fact that when I share my faith, I can't ultimately screw it up, and I can't get in the way of God's plan, and what I'm doing, no matter how foolish it looks, no matter how foolish I feel, is destined to succeed ultimately. 2 Timothy 2.10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, the chosen, that they may obtain salvation that is in Christ. Now, he's not saying somehow their eternal salvation is in question. It's rather, I do everything that they, I want to be part of them coming to faith. I want to be part of their salvation experience, with eternal glory. And so Paul uses election and predestination as a motivation for evangelism. Hey, the the elect are going to hear and they're going to believe. They're going to. This can't fail. If I thought people's salvation depended on me, I would never sleep. I mean, seriously. I mean, How many of you have ever had a conversation with someone and afterwards, later that night or at dinner, you think, oh, man, I should have said. (laughs) Now, can you imagine the weight in your conscience if you actually believed? Now they're going to go to hell because I didn't think to say that. That would have to be the logical conclusion you'd come to. If it depends on me, <laughs> I'm going to mess it up. And, and I would just think, man, if only I would have said, what if I'd said this instead of that? What if I'd worn this instead of that? What if I'd stayed two minutes longer? What if I didn't say the stupid thing that I said? People, I mean, I would not, I think maybe, maybe you don't analyze things. I can analyze things like this. I would just chase my tail and I'd never be able to move. Um, there's an expression, you sleep like a Calvinist. and, and So you do the best you can. You, you witness as faithfully as you can. You plead with men, like Second Corinthians says, God imploring, imploring you to be reconciled back to Christ. And then you say, says, back to Second Timothy, then you say, I was patient. I was kind. I wasn't quarrelsome. I taught the gospel. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leave them knowledge of the truth. I want to go home and, and, and sleep with a sound conscience. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think this is. A, I think people that use this as an excuse not to evangelize, and to be fair, there are those who do, don't have biblical thinking. They're they're just being lazy. And if you're looking for reasons not to evangelize, that speaks very poorly of the state of your soul and your spiritual health. You want to say something? <laughs> Possibility. yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Let me say that for the tape just because that's worth pointing out. Weeks ago, when we talked about this notion of the compatibility between a sovereign God and meaningful decisions made by men, that, there's, that they're not either or. The temptation we have is either God is sovereign or I'm responsible and active. And we're saying that the Bible says you are responsible, you are active, you do make decisions, you do have an effect on things, and God is absolutely sovereign. And we say it's a mystery how those two things come together, but the Bible teaches both. The, the Arminian. believes one half and rejects the other. They say, okay, I'm responsible, therefore God's not in control. And the hyper-Calvinist or the person who doesn't believe in evangelism believes the other half, at the exclusion of the other. God's so in control, it doesn't matter what I do. Both are wrong. Both are wrong. And so we need to believe that our actions are efficacious, that God is sovereign over all things, but he's sovereign through means. He's sovereign through through actions and deeds. He causes the grass to grow, but he does it through photosynthesis and rain, not magic, right? And he causes the elect to be saved, but he does it through the proclamation of his gospel by his, by his children. Uh, yes? Just picture this the founder of the modern missionary movement, Oh, yeah. He was preparing to go to China. God will save the heathen without yeah, your somebody, help. Somebody said God will save the heathen without your help when he desires to. Yeah. Uh, that was a hyper Calvinist. But Harry himself was a Calvinist. Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of hard to say that a Calvinist. Right. Right. Indeed. Yes. Yeah. Right. I can't say that, but okay. <laughs> no, we, no, No, I'm only going to zoom in because we say that, but it's not true. We haven't all done the best we can. We've all screwed up. We, all of us oh, have. Yeah, right, right, right. Okay, okay. Yeah. Right, right. No, th- yeah, absolutely. absolutely. No, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to jump. No, but people, I know you did as good as you could. No, I didn't. <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, so... Any other objections or questions before we flip the page that you can think of? Because my last bullet point here is additional objections. You got any? Or questions about election predestination? I don't have any but you oh, you got an objection, Steve. I know somehow. I know somehow this is an objection in disguise. So, so I'm ready. I just think that there are a lot of people, I mean, I've been in Nashville, I've been in Dallas. Been yeah. That was great, Stu. <laughs> really yeah. Yeah. And that people believe this and just been perpetuating the same yeah. theory of election over and over And nobody here wants to believe that their parents taught them wrong. Right. Right. Nobody wants to believe their pastor is teaching them right. it's not their scripture. Yeah and, and things and things come into vogue. No, things come into vogue. At the time of the Protestant Reformation, all the Protestants believed this. They all did. Luther, Zwingli, Bucer, Huss. No, he was dead before the Protestant Reformation, but you know. Um, all those guys. All the, all the old catechisms, all the old statements of faith, the Heidelberg, um, the, all of those guys believed this. And then recently, in the last 50 or 60 years, even the Protestants, and not the Protestants, the, the, the um, Puritans, and, the, and, the, and all of our forefathers on the, um, from the New England, come on, the, the pilgrims, all believed this stuff. All, all of them were Calvinists, quote-unquote. And in the last 1,500 years, the pendulum swung the other way, and so um, with Finneyism and stuff like that, that, this has all become the... the it's starting to swing back the other way. The largest growing segment in the church believes stuff like this. Um, and so, yeah, the church goes back and forth. And yeah, if you grow up and everyone around you says the same thing and your parents taught it to you, it does sound kind of weird. Like, I've never heard this before. Okay, great. So let's, let's read and study. and Yes. Yeah, humanism. Humanism always strikes me as really odd and self-defeating. Humanism simultaneously believes that we came from meaningless nothing. We're heading towards meaningless nothing. But man, it's a really big deal, this little blip in the middle. Let's make the most of that. I don't get that. But yeah, humanism, absolutely. Man's the measure of all things. You know, Beethoven's ninth symphony, Freud What a great what a great work of art is man. What a great thing is man. Man is wonderful. And then it puts man firmly into the center of the story. And, and if man's firmly in the center of the story, you get a very different gospel, you get a very different understanding of the Bible. And we're used to being told, we're just coming out of the self-esteem movement, that the, the worst possible thing that could happen to you in your, your growth and your maturity is to think anything bad about yourself. You're a wonderful little sunbeam. And, um, and you, you can, you, there's certainly value. You bury the... You bury... You bury... You bear... <laughs> a borrowed dignity of the image of God that gives you value. But even that's not something inherent to yourself. It's his stamp upon you. And you were you ransomed and you were redeemed, and he is making you lovely. And you are precious in his sight, not because you're precious, but because you're precious in his sight. But the, our world thinks that, that anything sort of negativity thinking with man at the center is the worst possible thing imaginable. If man's the measure of all things, you're going to have a really hard time a lot of things in the Bible, but not the least of which will be election and predestination, certainly. And we don't, we live in a day, you're right, Marina, where, where humanism and man-centered thought is, is at an all-time potentially high, you know. Um, so, no, I think that has a lot to do with a lot of the factors, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, we, yeah, we could go on and on and on. But we're going to flip the page. Flip the page. Turn the page. And what we're going to do now is we're going to kind of sum up what we've been looking at for the last few months, looking at salvation. And this chart is from a book. Greg, this is one of the books you got from Tough Men. It's a chart from House's Charts of Christian Theology and Doctrine. And what this is, is a chart looking at the application of salvation in time. And... One of the things I want you to get is this. When we say about in time, some of these things clearly precede each other by oftentimes years. Others are so closely related, what we're zeroing in on is causality. So if the Bible says this causes this, if A causes B, then logically A precedes B. If A is the cause of B, then A must be before B. We're not trying to say, well, how much before B? No, no, we're just looking at it in order. And so here is, um, here is this, I think they've got this pretty much right. Um, and here's the application of salvation in time. Now, by application of salvation in time, this presupposes already that God has in eternity past chosen those whom he will gift to his son. That's why the son speaks of it in John 17. You've given them to me. So God the Father wants to make a special love gift to his son of a redeemed humanity on condition that the son redeems them. So that's, that's where this takes place. Even, even God's love for us is an overflow of his love for the son. We're caught up in intra-Trinitarian love. The father demonstrates his love to the son by giving his son a redeemed humanity conditioned upon the son redeeming them. Ever thought that that might be why Jesus loves you so much because you represent the gift his father gave him? Parents, I mean, I'll put these little horrible things up on the fridge, right? Who knows what that is? It's like some sort of inkblot test. But Sophie made it, so it's precious. It's beautiful, right? Father gives us to the Son. But then in time, we get to the effectual call, which, by which you mean God's special calling of the elect into fellowship with Jesus Christ. Different from the general call. So there's this general call to all people. Paul says in Acts that God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. And he wants us, according to the end of Matthew, the end of Luke, to go into all the world, and to all creation, preaching the gospel. So there's this general call that goes out to all. But then, if you turn to Romans 8, I think we actually might get through this. We've got 10 minutes. I'm going to be bold. Let's we'll see what we can do. Unless some pesky questions get in the way. Um. <laughs> no, no, no. Yes. Um. <laughs> no. No. Uh, Steve, I was the guy who was constantly raising questions in class, constantly. I remember one time when I was at Word of Life Bible Institute, the professor stops and says, Now, before I move on, does anyone have any questions? And I'm he looks both ways in the auditorium. Okay, moving on. And <laughs> I kid you not. I don't blame him for it, but I kid you not. That actually happened. Um, okay. Romans eight thirty. Um, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Now, theologians have called this the golden chain because once you get on at the beginning, you, you don't get off. It's the same, it's the pronouns. This is back to grammar being important. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. So who did he predestine the group that he foreknew? To be Um, I'm sorry, I'm back to 29, conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. So who did he call? Now that is a smaller group than those who are called generally, isn't it? Right? And those whom he called, he justified. It's a one-to-one correspondence. So this call, and, and theologians, Bible students, refer to the effectual call of God And the general call of God. And Paul here is dealing with the effectual call of God. Everyone here who gets called comes. It's like Jesus in John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. All who get called in this sense get raised. It's a one-to-one correspondence. So, and maybe this is your experience. You heard the gospel many a time, many a time, and then one day it shifted, it clicked. You were drawn, you were called. The effectual call of God which then, regeneration by the Holy Spirit, the cleansing and renewing work of the Holy Spirit, imparting new life to man, and enabling him to believe. Now catch that last phrase, enabling him to believe. Regeneration, and if we're parsing this out. Go to John 3. We're parsing this out. Salvation is a package whole, but I do feel comfortable looking at individual pieces of it to the degree that Scripture looks at individual pieces of it. But Jesus says, plain as day in John 3 to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, you can't see. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You can't rightly see and understand the gospel without the work of the Holy Spirit, without being born of God. Regeneration does not mean forgiveness. Regeneration simply means an implanting of some spiritual life by the Spirit into your heart, okay? And so Jesus says, you need this sort of principle of light, or another metaphor for regeneration. You need the veil removed, 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this world knows the case of those who are perishing. The God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers with seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God. The God who caused light to shine out of darkness has caused the light of the gospel to shine in our hearts. So I can't see, and I can't see, and so the gospel comes out. It doesn't look beautiful. It doesn't look beautiful. It looks ugly. It looks frightening. It looks unatrielling. Boom! Holy Spirit grants life, and I see, and the lights go on. And then I believe. And Jesus says that plainest day in John 3, that regeneration, that work of the Spirit, which causes, enables us to believe. Nowhere in the Bible are we told, if you believe, you will be born again. Nowhere. So regeneration of the Holy Spirit, a sovereign work of God. Theologians also talk about those acts of our salvation in which we participate and those in which we don't. And they speak of a monergism and a synergism. Synergy is people working together. Monergism is one person working. Regeneration is the monergistic work of God. You don't invite it. You don't cause it to happen. You don't participate in it. You participate as much in your second birth as you did in your first and that's exactly the point Jesus makes in verse 8 of John 3. Like, we'll go back so you can see what he's likening it to. Go back to 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Being born of the Spirit is like the wind blowing. You don't know where it's going. You don't know where it's been, but you hear it as it goes by, and you feel it as it goes by. Oh, look, someone just got birthed by the Spirit. How do you know? They they came to faith. You don't know where the Spirit's going next. You don't know where he's been. And you certainly don't influence it. You certainly don't determine it. So the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, which then, the part we do participate in, conversion through faith in Christ and repentance for sins. The unbeliever is turning away from sin and turning to Christ. Now, you actually do this, which is why the gospel call is not be born again. The gospel call is believe or repent or repent and believe. And we went through all that a couple months ago. And you actually do that. You actually believe. You actually turn from sin. You actually turn to Christ. And that is synergistic if you want to parse it out and zoom it in. Conversion faith. Now then God responds to faith with justification. Paul's extremely clear in Romans 3, we argue that one is justified by faith. The trigger that 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 God that, that enacts justification, which is now the forgiveness of sins, is my faith. God doesn't forgive until he sees faith. Now, my faith is preconditioned upon me not being dead in my sins anymore and me being able to see and understand a work of the Spirit in my heart. So get the chain here. I'm called affectionately. I'm drawn. The Spirit pulls the blinds off, and I see, and Christ is beautiful. And I say, I want that, and I don't want my sin anymore. And I entrust myself to Him in faith and repentance. And God the Father sees that faith. He sees that repentance, and He says, forgiven. And then... After being reconciled, we receive, and this is all just causality. Now, as no longer alienated, we are adopted into his family as sons and daughters. Adoption as children of the Heavenly Father. The transfer of the believer from alienation to the God of son, to, from God to sonship. And that again is also back in John 8. We've received the spirit not of slavery, but of sonship, by which we cry, Abba, Father. And then As adopted children who have the Holy Spirit, who are forgiven, we become more and more obedient over the course of our life as the shepherd shepherds us, as the Spirit convicts us and opens our eyes to understand. And we are sanctified. This is a progress. Everything up to this point has been a moment in time. A moment in time you went from death to life. A moment in time you enacted sincere and genuine faith. A moment in time where God forgave you and you received his spirit, and you became adopted. But now, sanctification takes years, decades. It's progressive. And ultimately, the shepherd causes us to persevere in the word of Christ. This is how we make sense of some of those passages that talk about you must make it to the end. you got to make it to the end. You do. And the shepherd will cause all of his children to make it to the end. He won't let any sheep get lost. They'll start to wander off, and he'll go with his rod and his crook, and he'll bring them back. And finally, at death or the return of Christ, glorification with Christ, the completion of our salvation. That is, from a bird's eye view, the package of the gospel. This is all the gospel accomplishes, that in eternity past, we were foreknown, and we are called, and we are granted life, and we're forgiven, and we're we're then Shepherded throughout this life to persevere in faith, to persevere in growing holiness, and finally to be transformed into his image when he returns. Um, any, any questions on that? We've actually finished this handout, which means I gotta have a new one next week. Um, that is the, what the gospel does for us all those things. Um, it's glorious and it's wonderful. And you are dismissed.